My Texas Table presents the Healthy Brain Podcast. This is the show for people who want to improve their brain stability, clarity, and longevity. Here's your host, certified health coach, Carrie Wainwright-Miller. Hey, my friends. Thanks so much for tuning into the Healthy Brain Podcast. This is a place to connect for real talk about brain health because your brain matters. Y'all, we have got a special guest here on the podcast today. I met this young lady at a presentation she was given at the Hope and Healing Center and Institute here in Houston, Texas. She's a geriatrician and former pharmacist. Her research and clinical interest focuses on the appropriate use of medications in older patients, particularly those approaching end of life. She's the director of the Division of Geriatric and Palliative Medicine at Govern Medical School joined UT Physicians in 2015 and Joan and Stanford Alexander Chair in Geriatology. Please help me welcome Dr. Holly Holmes. Thank you, Carrie. Hey, how are you? I'm very good. It's very good to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you today. I believe that our listeners are going to receive some valuable information on the topic of polypharmacy. Since you have extensive knowledge on drugs, as a former pharmacist, um, you are the drug expert, right? Sure. <laughs> or I know that the pharmacists are really the experts. <laughs> there, there we go. So before we talk about our drugs can we, uh, that can be harmful to our body and brain, please first tell us um, the definition of polypharmacy. That's actually a difficult question to answer. There's not a great consensus about what polypharmacy is. And I think we all agree that the word doesn't even mean what we think it means. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would say, okay, polypharmacy means too many pharmacies. Um, so it's a term that we really haven't embraced very well. But I really like the definition recently proposed with the Lown Institute, with which I served on a group, a working group to define this, which is polypharmacy is medication overload. And I think we can all embrace that idea that many of us are taking too many medications. We feel burdened by them. We feel burdened by the side effects, by the costs. So traditionally, polypharmacy has been defined as the use of five or more medicines or 10 or more medicines or more medicines than indicated or using a medicine to treat the side effects of other medicines. And the reason to define it that way is so that we can do research on it. But I think the idea of medication overload is much more understandable to the people who are experiencing it. Yes, I understand. So let's just, you know, let's talk about these medications that are potentially harmful with people who are 65 and older, say. So if you don't mind, let's just kind of talk one by one. If you could please give like examples and why they would be harmful. Um, so let's begin with antihistamines. Yes, absolutely. So antihistamines that cause sed sedation or sleepiness. So those sort of old school antihistamines like diphenhydramine chlorpheniramine, bromphenyramine, some of those ones that re are really over-the-counter, those are on a list of drugs to avoid because they cause excessive sleepiness, they can cause confusion, they have other side effects that are really those anticholinergic-called effects that we might get into in a bit. But you, you mentioned sort of list of medications. I just want to back up and say that there are lists of medications that are recommended to be avoided in people 65 and older simply because the risk outweighs any potential benefit. Yes. That there may be benefit. It's just that the risk is greater than the benefit. And as we get older, those risks really accumulate because of our being more and more vulnerable to side effects and interactions and not being able to metabolize them appropriately. Mm -hmm. 
So antihistamines are a perfect example. A younger person would be able to take a dose of diphenhydramine, the brand name of which is Benadryl, for an allergy on a regular basis and not have any really bad side effects. But an older person, even a single dose of Benadryl could cause significant confusion. Mm. Okay, good. Um, What about sleep aids? Sleep aids are the worst. They're just the bane of my existence. Come on, girl. So a lot of the -the over-the-counter sleep aids actually have those first-generation antihistamines in them. Mm -hmm. So I think people don't understand that they're getting the diphenhydramine-like drugs or doxylamine or other drugs similar to that that are, uh, again, overly sedating and can cause confusion. But the sleep aids that are prescription, those so-called Z drugs like Zolpidem, Esopiclone, Mm-hmm. And the um, benzodiazepines, drugs like uh, lorazepam, diazepam, brand names of which include things like Valium, Ativan, those are sedatives that have been used for many years. Again, they cause excessive sedation. The risk outweighs the benefit. And particularly those sedatives like the benzodiazepines and the Z drugs, people who take those drugs have a significantly higher, up to three times higher risk of falling and breaking a, mm. a joint, particularly the hip, yeah. when they take those medications. Okay. So again, they cause confusion, they cause excessive sedation, they can cause um, changes in memory function and long-term changes in physical function, all of which are harmful. That's a lot. It's a lot. So yeah, the big pharma um, promotes their sale of sleep aids through extensive direct-to-consumer ads and through contributions that influence public sleep education. The National Sleep Foundation, the leading nonprofit organization dedicated to improving sleep health, has received substantial funds from numerous pharmaceutical companies. Well, yes. And I would, I mean, we would all consider (laughs) that a very significant conflict of interest. Mm. I think, you know, the the problem is, and the elephant in the room is that we all feel like we're not sleeping well, Mm. and we aren't given acceptable alternatives. And the fact is, there aren't very many, if any, acceptable alternatives to taking medications that mm-hmm. are really not that effective and are harmful. So sleep medications have been overpromoted. Their benefits have been overstated. Their risks have been minimized. In previous studies, when comparing cognitive behavioral therapy, so really a therapy focused towards reducing anxiety and promoting better sleep and promoting better sleep behaviors, mm-hmm. that actually had a stronger effect than these sleep medications. And if you think about that, the harm is pretty minimal. But in the past, there hasn't been marketing of cognitive behavioral therapy. There hasn't been adequate coverage. It's hard to find providers who take Medicare who will provide CBT for sleep. So we're left with this gap. But the problem is the sleep medicines aren't really filling the gap adequately. They're just making us more unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sure you're aware of the natural approaches, you know, just, you know, things that we can do, you know. Yes. To prepare ourselves for good sleep. Yes. I I actually frequently refer people to and use free resources available from the Canadian Deprescribing Network. Okay. And those are available at deprescribing.org. So that's D-E-P-R-E-S-C-R-I-B-I-N-G.org, just in case anybody doesn't know that word. Yeah, I'll put a link. Okay, fantastic. But deprescribing.org has all kinds of resources for how to reduce those medicines. Mm -hmm. and. It is a challenge. So I would not recommend anybody who's been taking a sleep aid for years and years and years to suddenly stop it tomorrow because they've heard this podcast and they agree. They do need to wean off of it slowly. Absolutely. They have a very, very slow weaning process that a person can do without 
having to consult their doctor. It's a lot safer over about a four-month period. But at the same time as doing that, they have a very large handout on all of those behavioral things that people can do to improve their sleep. Mm. Things like avoiding screens late at night, not watching the news right before going to bed, only sleeping in bed, getting out of bed when you're not able to sleep, sitting in a chair and reading, and then going back to bed when tired. Even the basic things like hot milk, there is a basis to that. Our moms Mm. were right. So all of those kinds of things are in the handouts from the Deep Prescribing Network, the Canadian Deep Prescribing Network. Okay, yeah, that's great information. Thank you for that. Okay, sedatives. Oh, yes. So sleep aids and sedatives, I kind of lumped them all together. Yeah. Okay. So there... I didn't make the distinction, but there are certainly over-the-counter sleep aids, Mm -hmm. and then there are really sedatives that are prescription. So some of the sleep aids are those ones that we said. We didn't really touch on melatonin. And I would say of all the things that we, we might talk about, melatonin would be the the least harmful, I find that there aren't that many people who find a earth-shattering effect of melatonin. Mm-hmm. But if it is effective, then it's really much safer than the other options we've discussed. There are other medicines that have been used for sleep also that mm-hmm. have been used as sedatives that might be traditionally antidepressants. And again, we get into this balance of risk-benefit. Mm-hmm. There is no medication that we can use for sleep that is without harm. Okay. Okay. Have you... Have you do you know anything about the magnesium, magnesium chelate? Mm-hmm. Are you are you a proponent of that? I sometimes will recommend trying it. There mm. is some amount of evidence that that taking magnesium might be might have you know it's, it's even marketed under the name Calm. I am aware, yes, but may have that calming effect. There are times when I do urge caution, though. So I do think that if people want to take magnesium at bedtime for sleep, they just need to make sure to check with their doctor or healthcare provider. They don't have any reason to have any overload. So people who have chronic kidney disease may not clear it adequately and may actually have higher levels than would be appropriate. So just a little bit of caution on that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Antipsychotics. Definitely um, medication category that is on the list of high risk, low benefit, but particularly for the use in patients who have dementia, who have behavioral uh, symptoms related to dementia. Again, the challenge there is that we have to find acceptable alternatives to antipsychotics. We know studies repeatedly show the harms of antipsychotics and the lack of benefit, frankly. Absolutely. Mm, There there is certainly, and in my own practice for sure, there are patients for whom the paranoia and the psychotic symptoms that come along with dementia mean that that patient is so unsafe. We try all kinds of alternatives, but we must try the behavioral alternatives first. Mm, A lot of patients can be redirected, can be put into an environment that's got more structure, has different kind of activity, more support. And I think that this is where we really need to be funneling our efforts is supporting the patient and the caregiver to stay as independent as possible, but in an environment free of medication. So that sounds so ideal. I realize that's not always possible. Yeah. But again, in the right, more structured environment with redirection and a focus toward how to understand how to minimize and not escalate those symptoms, Mm -hmm. then I think patients do a lot better and they do a lot better without medication. Yeah, that's hits so home with me because mom being in the home with dementia. So thank you. Muscle relaxants. Yeah, those are really not on my list that Mm. I prescribe. The muscle relaxants have not been shown to have significant benefit in any population. They're they're really very, again, for some patients, they are so sedating. Mm-hmm. So people say, well, I slept so well and I woke up so relaxed. It's probably actually that it was such a sedating effect that, yes, you got very relaxed sleep. But at the price of 
a much higher fall risk, dizziness, unsteadiness, and again, significant increased risk of falls with those medications. Okay. So let's cover um, statins. Yes, definitely. The statins are very appropriate. Just to be clear, this is where we get into a lot of gray area. Statins are among the most useful medications we have for prevention of heart disease and stroke. And I think the challenge is that those benefits have really been shown in younger populations who have high risk of heart disease, but who don't have other conditions that compete with that risk. Mm -hmm. Even the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology and numerous other societies have finally embraced a guideline that says when you're 75 and older, we are not certain about the benefits of statins anymore. So now it's very important to have an individual discussion and conversation with your provider. If you're someone who would rather take a medication and would rather prevent something knowing that you did as much as you could to prevent it, then maybe a statin is for you if your bad cholesterol is high and if your risk is high enough. But if you're a person who really does not want to take medications, wants to avoid them, or has had side effects on the statins, it is perfectly reasonable to say, okay, if I'm preventing a condition that I don't have, you have no known heart disease, no known history of stroke or mini stroke, it would be reasonable to not take a statin. And so I think we're in this middle zone right now where we're unsure how to treat older people, even though the vast majority of people eligible to take a statin are over 75. So, But you know, what about the side effects from statins? I think a lot of people do pretty well, but it is likely that, uh, you know, around 10 to 20% of people in some of the um, studies where they just followed people's symptoms, but maybe even up to 30% in some of those studies, depending on the population, can experience some vague muscle pains, muscle cramps, Mm -hmm, can have joint pains. Mm -hmm. And that has some long-term consequences in terms of mobility and function. And that's what we really can't minimize is that we don't want to press and push the statins even if that means that somebody is going to lose their mobility down the road, that would be so much more harmful to them. So again, it's one of those where we've tended to overstate the benefits and minimize the risks, and we really need to recognize that there is some risk. Mm -hmm. So there are patients who have really vague issues with like fatigue and just not feeling great. We stop the statin in a very time-limited trial and see how people feel. If you don't feel any different, then it was something else. But if you feel differently, and we're talking about a two to three-week trial off of a statin, then maybe it's worth either rotating onto a different one or going off of it. And it's um, addictive? The statins are not addictive. And you okay. and those can be stopped suddenly. They don't have to be weaned down. Okay. So, and, and again, I don't recommend that everybody just go off their statin. It's a really individual discussion with your provider, which is, mm-hmm. what is my risk of heart disease and stroke? Would it be reasonable for me to stop a statin to see how I feel? And then after that, have a discussion about whether I would restart it or not, mm-hmm. especially if you have no known history, history of heart disease or cerebrovascular disease, you know, history of stroke. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so antibiotics. Antibiotics. Whole nother beast. Especially right now. We're getting into allergy season again, where we get to this confusing zone of, do I have sinusitis, bronchitis? Is this pneumonia? Is this just the common cold? Do I have, listen, we're not going to talk about coronavirus, please, but you know, <laughs> do I have no, we're not going all there. of these other things? <laughs> so I, we know that we overuse antibiotics. We know that we are over-treating, and, we, and bladder infections being another you know, big culprit. 
So we have to be very cautious to really treat what we really think is a bacterial infection with a drug for a bacteria, bacterium. Uh, we, we know that many of these respiratory illnesses that people come in with are viral and that they will get better over time. And there's always this confounding thing that people say, well, every time I have this, I get a pack and I get better. And it's, but you would get better without that antibiotic. Absolutely. So it's really hard to convince people. But I've started to do a practice a little bit differently that I think I think it works a little bit better. And I think some providers are starting to do this, which is especially going into a long weekend or symptoms have gone on, you know, a couple weeks and now it's Friday. I think it's reasonable to have a prescription in hand with very clear directions for when you would actually fill it. I think what people get anxious about is that they're not going to be able to get back into their doctor and they won't be able to get an antibiotic when they need it. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, they don't need it. So I often will tell people, I think it's too early for an antibiotic at this point. This is still most likely viral. And the way we know that we were wrong is if the symptoms massively progress, if, you know, if there's coughing with secretions or if there's chunky stuff coming out of your sinuses, if that's progressing and getting worse and more and more discolored and more and more throughout the day, and it's associated with a different pattern of fevers, different pattern of shortness of breath. If we check for an elevated white blood cell count, a much Mm -hmm. more reliable indicator of infection, and if we check chest x-rays in in the appropriate setting, that kind of information helps push us towards bacterial infection and away from viral. That is what we really need to use to help decide, because objectively— that information is is per te- perhaps more useful. Subjectively, these infections often look the same. So when you're talking about pneumonia, mm-hmm. say for instance, and and person ends up in the hospital with pneumonia, and they're throwing all kinds of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. It's important person. to when when someone has pneumonia, it is very likely that broad we we would call it broad spectrum. You know that antibiotics mm-hmm. are used pretty early on that cover a, a wide array of potential organisms. And that that coverage needs to be narrowed down relatively quickly if the cause is identified. But there's kind of a standard, you know, there are kind of standard protocols used for pneumonia and that we narrow that down as quickly as we can. It's usually two or three antibiotics. Mm -hmm, Exactly. That I found with both my parents. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some value to getting cultures of the sputum if we can. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we just cannot get adequate cultures. And in the right setting, that can be helpful. In other settings, it's not. So it's a real challenge. And the biggest thing with antibiotics that we see, and we see it in an individual patient, bladder infections are a perfect example, that we, we over-test the urine, we over-treat it, and we find a bug that used to be um, sensitive to ciprofloxacin, for example, and on repeated treatment of the same drug for really vague symptoms or when we're not even convinced there's an infection, but we grow out the bacteria, we keep using the same antibiotic. We actually select out the resistance and we can see in that very single patient, couple infections down the road, they now are resistant to all oral antibiotics and they can only receive intravenous antibiotics in the hospital. So that's what we really have to avoid. Mm, I get that. So yeah, so if we take antibiotics, um, especially rounds and rounds of antibiotics, I mean, people have had side effects from that, obviously. And it destroys the gut health. Yeah, well, most definitely. It does a lot yeah. of things um, that can be harmful, including so- selecting out resistant organisms. And gut health is a big part of that. Although, to be honest, I don't think we know enough about how to correct that yet. I mean, I think that we do a lot 
to correct. But what we're probably going to end up doing down the road is we're all going to have this single population of lactobacillus in our guts because <laughs> we, you know, we we're overpopulating that too. So I think that we have to have a more nuanced understanding of how to how to really combat that. Okay. So the thought of any um, memory loss as a result of medications that are supposed to be aiding your healing is a scary one. Should we be concerned with drugs with anticholinergics? Yeah, anticholinergics. Exactly. Oh, I know go. we need a different <laughs> name for that. So yeah, that, I mean, there's really not a good alternative. It doesn't roll off the tongue. It doesn't. It really doesn't. <laughs> fact, so, so we're trying to preserve when we're trying to preserve brain health. Yes. So anticholinergic and sedative medicines, mm-hmm. both of those categories, there is convincing evidence. And there's actually a, a really good long-term study where they took people 75 and older who were perfectly healthy, did not have dementia, did not have cognitive impairment, you know, or mild cognitive impairment, you know, mm-hmm. sort of early signs, didn't have any functional impairment, any physical dysfunction. And they compared the people who took higher burden of anticholinergic drugs compared to people who took lower burden. And when you follow these people over several years, the higher the burden of anticholinergic medication, the more likely that they developed cognitive impairment by objective neurologic testing and functional impairment by the difficulty in doing day-to-day activity and physical dysfunction. So like performance on physical tasks. Right. So we see that the burden of these medications is that we are making ourselves cognitively and physically impaired, which is pretty scary. Yeah, it is. So can you give us, just for our our listeners, can you explain um, the drugs and then give us some examples? Well, we we already talked about the first generation antihistamines. Mm -hmm. They have Mm -hmm. anticholinergic side effects. Some classes of drugs have individual drugs in which some are more anticholinergic than others. So, for example, antidepressants. There are some antidepressants that are highly anticholinergic. So tricyclic antidepressants, which are a little bit old school, but those are things like amitriptyline and nortriptyline. Those are sometimes used, they're very rarely used for depression because they cause so much sedation, but they're sometimes used for um, pain from neuropathy. Those are highly anticholinergic as opposed to the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors used for depression. Generally, those are not very anticholinergic. They have slight differences across the class where some might be a little bit more than others. So, Those kinds of medications that basically cause sedation, constipation, can cause sort of a general slowness. Those are those anticholinergic side effects. Those are the ones that we really want to minimize. So if it's possible, we try to choose a drug in the same class that's less anticholinergic. If it's not possible, we just try to minimize the number of those kinds of drugs that are used. So a good example would be, let's say somebody's been taking a benzodiazepine, and we really do try to avoid those medicines, like the lorazepam, alprazolam, that that kind of list that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Let's say we've been using that medication for decades and decades. It is a harmful medication that we're going to try to minimize. We would try to change to something else depending on what we're treating. Mm -hmm. If we're treating a generalized anxiety disorder, we'd try to use something for anxiety. If we're using it to treat muscle symptoms, we would try to use something else. If we're using it to treat sleep, we would really try to get off of that. But that drug alone is probably is bad enough, but it's the idea of what if you're taking one of those drugs, one of the benzodiazepines, plus an antipsychotic, plus an antidepressant that's very sedating, plus an antihistamine, plus, you know, one of another category of drugs that might have an anticholinergic effect. Then you think about you've accumulated so much daily burden of that type of side effect. Mm-hmm. And that's probably where we're really in trouble is when people are on quite a few of these drugs rather than just one. And a good rule of thumb is, you know, if any, 
anything that affects your brain. You sort of don't want to be on two or more medicines that you know affect your brain. Yeah. And it's whether it's acting on your brain or it has a side effect in your brain. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of basic way to think about it. But I know we'll get to this, but it is something that a pharmacist can help review or a physician or or a healthcare provider can help review. Yeah, you can uh, can talk about that. So pharmacists are a great resource to figure out what's my burden of anticholinergic and sedative drugs. Mm-hmm. They, it's not good to go to them on Friday at 5 p.m. They don't have time to talk to you then. But you could see if they have time to review your medication list and let you know which ones have these kinds of properties. Because they, they can tell you right away, these are your anticholinergic drugs. This is the list you want to take to your doctor and see if we could reduce some of these. Maybe schedule an appointment then. Right. You could yeah. schedule an appointment with a yeah. consultation, see when they're most available. Okay. Okay. Um, that's awesome information. I'll add that link as well. How about the anti-seizure meds? I'm curious to know about those because I Depends know on the use. On I mean, they can be very difficult as well. And some mm-hmm. of them have a lot of drug interactions. Whenever someone's taking something like phenytoin, the brand name is Dilantin, mm-hmm. we're always really cautious because it interacts with the drugs just across the board. Mm-hmm. It can affect the metabolism of all these other drugs and actually lower their levels. So some seizure drugs are, are very well tolerated and can be okay. And again, it gets back to what is the use. If we're actually treating epilepsy, you know, we really need to find a drug that's going to be reasonable, not have too many drug interactions, and is going to keep it under control. But seizure drugs are often used for a lot of other indications. And so we also just want to be cautious about that because that contributes to that burden of polypharmacy. Yeah. And so what about allergy medications? Well, this gets back to antihistamines. And I tend to avoid decongestants as a rule. I think a lot of people see that on the packaging. So we get back to those first-generation antihistamines that are sedating. Really try to avoid those. Decongestants are really try to avoid because of they, their effect on increasing blood pressure and increasing heart rate. Other allergy medicines that are commonly used would be like steroid nasal sprays, um, antihistamine nasal sprays. And I think the biggest thing, and it's very difficult because we're here in Houston and we're starting to have allergy season again, right? Tree pollen is everywhere. It's... It's difficult to at least try to minimize the duration. I think what happens is sometimes people start medication, they just keep taking it forever. And it doesn't need to be taken indefinitely, especially if it's going to be for a self-limiting condition. Mm. So if you know that you're allergic to a particular thing and you see that it's really high right now, maybe now is the time to be using this medication. But then you want to back off as soon as you're able. Yeah. Yeah, great advice. So, Dr. Holmes, as a pharmacist and geriatric doctor, do you believe we should be giving our loved ones any of these drugs if they have dementia? I know you had mentioned that earlier. No, (laughs) because the side effects totally are outweighing the little to no benefits of the drugs, right? Yeah, I think that we really have to be cautious in patients with dementia that the medications that we give them, they are extremely vulnerable to their side effects. And we have to be extremely cautious about using medications that are going to worsen their conditions. Um, Again, we get back to this antipsychotic issue. We really want to try all kinds of other interventions, but that requires so much more caregiver support than caregivers get currently. And there is no doubt. Yeah, Yeah. even if they're in in a home. And there's no doubt that what we see happening now is, you know, nursing homes are carefully watched for their use of these kinds of medications, but other facilities aren't. And we want people to be in the most independent setting mm-hmm. possible. 
And there are times when other types of facilities, such as assisted living, and not necessarily in memory care, but just regular assisted living, that there is a push to medicate patients so that they will be, you know, calmer or safer or whatever it is that's going on. And we can all appreciate that there are times when we are, again, really looking at that risk-benefit equation. How critical is it that we keep a person in their home and the only way to keep them in their home is that this medication is the thing that prevents them from trying to murder everyone in the middle of the night. So we're really talking about extreme situations. Mm-hmm. There are times when patients are so aggressive and so combative and that we've done everything we can do. And again, we really have to try to improve the environment, improve the support for the caregiver, improve the education for people with the patient during day and night. And there are still times that failing all that, we end up using these medications. But we really have to consider that the exception. We really have to consider that a rare time. But it's really when it comes down to the safety of the patient and others around them. And that's when we get into, you know, a lot of trouble. So again, in the right environment, I feel like we can often support these people and minimize medication. Yeah. So let's, now let's talk about um, dementia meds. So much money has been spent, billions and billions of dollars have been spent to come up with a drug to treat Alzheimer's. None of them work, really. Some of them are correlated with a faster decline of the disease. So why do you think these drugs continue to be sold? I just think we don't have anything else and we are looking for something. You know, the medications that are used to treat dementia are two basic categories, the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, (laughs) and and memantine. (laughs) An MDA receptor inhibitor. And they have mild to modest benefits at best. There are some patients who who see some benefit from it. But that benefit is, again, pretty small. Mm-hmm. And the challenge is, and this is this is where we get stuck and it's so frustrating. The challenge is that we see some delay in the progression of the disease or maybe some stabilization. It's hard to say that being stable is a really earth-shattering positive result. Mm -hmm. But people stay stable for about six to nine months longer, and then they still decline. That's six to nine months. That's just just six to nine months. Mm -hmm. And they're having the disease. And they still decline, and and the disease is there for years. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But the challenge has been that in the studies in which they did withdraw the medications, people declined faster. You know, they declined back to where they would have yeah, been so and couldn't not, regain. So why not even give it? Right. So the, I mean, so that's the frustrating why, why thing is that that's first. how people get put on the drug and then they stay on it forever because we're afraid to stop the medication. We're afraid to see that, you know, that decline happen and knowing that they wouldn't regain it. Okay. So I'm just going to say this over. So why give it to them in the first place? <laughs> I sorry, I think that sorry, y'all. you know it's huh? it's a difficult question to answer it's because okay. We're, this is going to be cut. Okay, I was going to say it. it's a it's difficult to answer because I really do struggle between not, the nihilism of not trying the medication versus giving it a try. There are patients for whom the benefit is perceivable for the family, but it's just a few months. That's true. However, so that is true, but the benefit that is seen over those I would say six to nine months. The idea is that there's still this higher level at at which the patient is at. Mm -hmm. Now, I completely agree. I think there needs to be an approach to withdrawing the medication if that benefit is not seen. The challenge for me is that there are very small numbers of patients who see a much larger benefit. So I actually do think that patients with dementia deserve a try on these medications and that 
that try needs to be accompanied with a very careful conversation about when we would stop the medicine. Mm -hmm. So we say, we're going to try denepazil, but we're going to discuss this in six months and we're going to stop the medicine if we have not seen that things stabilized or even improved. But if we see no benefit there, we're going to stop it because otherwise you're going to be on this medication for the rest of your life. And we'll be talking about stopping it at the end of life. Yeah. And that's what we really don't want. Well, it's, like an ex- it's an expense. Yes. For one. I mean, you know, if you don't have insurance, I can't even imagine. And I don't know what the insurance covers. Well, and so I think, I think what's a better way to approach using the medication is to be very upfront with patients and families mm-hmm. that the benefits are very small. But let's think about how we would measure the benefits. There, there was one study in which the benefit was a delay to nursing home placement. So being able to be in your own home for longer would be a benefit that would be meaningful to people. I'm wondering what the percentages are of that. Yeah, that, that, that one w- was also about a six-month delay on average. Okay. So some people were less and some people were more. There was another study in which caregiver hours were reduced. So patients actually were a little bit more functional and needed less caregivers. Now, this is me, you know, I'm not defending the drugs. This is me saying gotcha. this is as positive as I can get it. I can so tell if you think you're about really that, trying to be you know, positive like, over here, but let's yeah. talk about the side effects. Well, that's the thing. So if you think about it, like this is as positive as I can go and think about what we would be saying. This would be unacceptable for a blood pressure medication. Yes. You know, we'd say this medication might lower your blood pressure, but it might not. It might be just that your blood pressure stays exactly the same and that means the medication was working. We wouldn't accept that, right? Great. So Great the point. problem with the medications for dementia is that this is the best we've got, which is two categories that are not good mm-hmm. and that it's the only thing we have and we keep trying them because we have no other alternatives. Would you say it's a failed drug compared to a lot of the drugs out there on the market? I mean, I know you don't well, want to say hard that, to compare, girl. <laughs> it's hard to compare one disease state to another. I mean, it's certainly a drug I'm not in love with. I'm not, I'm not a big proponent. I think it's important to have a very good conversation. I think that healthcare providers need to be very open mm-hmm. about how these drugs are really not the end-all be-all. Yeah, I, I think, you know, looking at it from a broader perspective, you know, they spent billions. We're talking, you know, some yes. some publications say 600, some say 800. It doesn't really matter. It's still a whole lot of money. And just look at all the money. And yeah, they want to end up with something. They want to push something out there on the market. Yeah. And if this is all we got, this is all we got. But it's not enough. You know, that's right. why... So. Do you believe that we have other strategies and other approaches into, you know, into nutrition? And yeah, I think prevention is a prevention is an important strategy. And and kind of backing up to compare dementia to cancer. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, cancer is not cancer. There's all kinds mm-hmm. of cancers you can't compare. But we we also would not accept this little of a benefit to a cancer drug, right? We also don't put the kind of money into Alzheimer's research that we put into cancer research. And so we really have to focus on we are not going to push we are not going to push the science further until we really make a commitment to end Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's more and more momentum here, but these drugs are gonna fall by the wayside sometime in the future. Well, they're trying to initiate one of the drugs that have fallen off back in. Mm Mm-hmm. Under right. another name. Right. That's what I've heard right. recently. It's, so. it's sort of like everything's not working, so let's just go back to the drawing board and see what else we can do. So I do think that, you know, there's a difference between looking at, you know, people who have all early onset and who have genetic types of um, dementia and other different types of dementia illnesses beyond Alzheimer's and vascular mm-hmm. dementia. But we have to think about the 
things that have been effective is that having a healthy lifestyle, having a healthy diet, regular exercise, quitting smoking, those kinds of things are the things that long-term are the preventive strategies to do the best we can do to minimize our risk of cognitive impairment and also vascular dementia Mm -hmm. from strokes. Right. Yeah. So are you familiar with the side effects from dementia meds? Yes. So the challenge is not just that the benefits are sometimes not even be able perceived, you know, mm-hmm. that sometimes the benefit is so minuscule or so non-existent as to be not present, right? But it's the fact that there are side effects. When people first start the medications, they can have increased confusion. So they can have sort of acute worsening. Um, that usually is something that would prompt us to stop the drug immediately and that can, can improve. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of gastrointestinal side effects. So poor appetite, there can be diarrhea, changes in bowel habits, changes in sleep, changes in sort of dream pattern. One of the one of the things that people kind of forget to think about, which is, you know, sometimes when the medication is helpful, we actually return people to a previous state in which they were more unsafe or functional in a way that was unsafe. And while that can be, we can try to focus on the positive of that, it also can be very negative for caregivers and family. Mm-hmm. The patient's better, but, you know, one year ago when they were better than they are today was when they were much more paranoid and, you know, putting furniture out at the curb. Well, now we just return them to that state. So we also have to be very careful about um, how how they do on the medications, really watching their behavior, their day-to-day function, and sort of that pattern in their function, mm-hmm. that that can be a side effect of it as well. Okay. So can you please give our listeners key strategies, some key strategies to maybe oversee the list of drugs, who can they trust, and perhaps some resources to help them? The number one most important thing is to have a current, accurate, and regularly updated medication list that you have with you all the time. And I cannot stress that enough, that we give our patients in the clinic a paper list of medications to review. And sometimes people just, you know, we've made them fill out so many forms, they just can't be bothered, and they just sign it. And that implies that the list was correct. And it's not correct. And that is dangerous. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is every healthcare provider needs to have the correct medication list for you. We need to know what you're actually taking. And it also needs to be what you're actually taking, not what we all think you're taking. Mm -hmm. So if we think you're taking metoprolol twice a day, but you only take it every other day, that's concerning and we really need to know about it. And But I that probably happens all the time. It happens all the time. And I think people are afraid people of disappointing updating. their healthcare provider. They don't want the doctor to be angry at them. Mm-hmm. But it's dangerous not to tell them what you're actually taking because they would change medications based on what they think you're doing. Maybe, so, maybe not. Yeah, they might. I mean, I, there, how many times, I mean, my mother was on 17 meds. Do you think that a doctor even looked at their, her list? Right. I'm not quite sure. Right. So first is to even have the list. And then the second part is, it is perfectly acceptable to expect your healthcare provider to review your medication list and that that is part of what they should be doing. And you yes. need someone to be the champion of that list, the quarterback of the list. Ideally, that's your primary care provider or maybe the provider that you see the most often. Mm-hmm. So that might be different for somebody who has active heart disease. Maybe they see the cardiologist more often. For somebody who has active cancer issues, maybe they see the oncologist more often. But it is okay to ask them, would you please look over my list? And if you feel that you're exposed to medication overload, it's okay to ask them to reduce some of your medicines. You say, you know, I have too many medicines. Which ones can I get rid of? 
be prepared that your doctor might want to get rid of the ones that you want to keep and vice versa, mm-hmm. but at least open that conversation so that they do a careful review. Yeah, I'm not sure that a lot of people feel that they have a choice. I agree. Um, in that setting with the doctor, because a lot of times they feel like they're at the mercy of the doctor and that he does. He he went to school all those years and he knows what he's talking about. And and But yet when you ask him to wean, I mean, who's going to ask him to wean? You know, because the doctors put put them on the medication to begin with. So they trust their doctor. And so why would they even ask to be taken off? See what I'm saying? Well, oftentimes it's multiple doctors that prescribe multiple different things. Mm-hmm. So it's also about having one person kind of put that whole list together. Mm-hmm. But if you ask a doctor, do you intend for all of your patients to take 17 or more medicines? That's not their goal. And doctors are overburdened with complexity and decision-making all day long, it's very likely they don't ever stop and take just a quick moment to look at that list. So to assume that your healthcare provider has taken the time to look at your entire medication list is a dangerous assumption because they they probably have not had time. Mm -hmm. And so unless you bring their attention to it, they haven't done it. So ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. And it's perfectly okay to say it in a way that maybe doesn't offend them, which is, are there any medicines on my list that you think I don't need? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, d- would you suggest them going looking for a geriatric doctor? Which, what there's not a whole lot yeah, out there. Yeah, there really aren't. There will never be enough geriatricians to take care of I people know. over sixty-five or even seventy-five. Mm-hmm. So even now, we have anywhere between one to three geriatricians for every ten thousand people seventy-five and older. And a doctor can really only handle a patient a panel of about eight hundred complex older patients. So if you think about that, we will never be able to serve the need that's out there. So that being said, we have to rely on the primary care doctors to do what needs to be done. And they can do it. They just have to be reminded. Well, we talked about having an uh, updated medication list. Hello. Well, and, and we talked about asking your doctor to reduce medicines. But I want to talk about one other strategy. Okay. So that I think three strategies, really. One is to have a an accurate, complete medication list with you at all times. Okay, great. Number two is to take that list and ask your healthcare provider, are there any medications that you could reduce if you feel like you're subject to medication overload? Mm -hmm. And I think it is reasonable, even on a basic level, once a year to expect a comprehensive medication review. But the third strategy is use your pharmacist. The pharmacist has so much knowledge that they could tap into at any time but not when they're super busy filling prescriptions during rush hour, right? Mm -hmm. So see if your pharmacist will make a counseling appointment with you or would have a moment to do counseling with you around your whole medication profile and give you some recommendations to take back to your healthcare provider to discuss. So the pharmacist is sort of the resource that the unsung champion in this whole process that they Mm -hmm. could really help. Yeah. How how long do they go to school? I'm just curious. They go to school for six years. Yes. You know, they have a PharmD, a doctorate in pharmacy. So it's a... So they know all about... They know all about medication. And they get... They spend their entire pharmacy school life learning about medications. Doctors have one course called pharmacotherapy usually that is... Mm -hmm. That spans one year, you know, Mm -hmm. two semesters. Doctors learn in one class that spans two semesters what pharmacists learn in four years. Wow. So they do two years of pre-professional school and then four years of pharmacy school. Mm-hmm. So the pharmacist has a depth of knowledge that is way beyond what a physician had time to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, praise God for 
pharmacist, right? I know. Exactly. <laughs> so in your experience working with people 55 and older, have you seen that nutrition is playing an integral part in the process of healing symptoms of ailments instead of drugs with these long list of side effects? I think sometimes. I think that I think that what I try to encourage people to do is to use food or nutrition rather than supplements. Mm-hmm. So I do see a lot of people taking supplements for various things when those, you know, whatever the things that we need can be gotten from food. That's yes, so key. I agree. I agree. And we, we and sometimes wants to take 30 meds. Yes. And so we sometimes <laughs> forget some of the benefits of food. But again, it's also one of those where just because it's in food doesn't mean it's good to, to concentrate it and put it into a capsule and eat 20 times the normal amount. But there are certain foods that can be that can be helpful. So there are anti-inflammatory foods. There are foods that are pro-inflammatory. So for people who have inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or who have conditions that really tend to thrive on inflammation, cancer, for example, then we might really want to focus on an attitude toward nutrition or a, a nutritional approach that really embraces the anti-inflammatory diet. So it might not need to be extreme, but certainly avoiding certain you know, processed carbohydrates and sugars and yeah, alcohol absolutely. and avoiding certain types of oils, but using other types. You know, those kinds of approaches can be helpful. But in addition, um, there are foods that are actually anti-inflammatory, including um, things like, you know, ginger, things like uh, turmeric. So mm-hmm. having people use those instead of things like ibuprofen is sometimes a good strategy. So now, Dr. Holmes, I'd like to cover a really sensitive topic here in reference to many of the listeners who who might be depressed from caring for a loved one with dementia, perhaps, you know, depressed from a long battle with Alzheimer's. 322 million worldwide suffer depression and anxiety disorders. 18% of Americans, only 30% of all people with depression don't respond adequately to any available treatments. We look around today and all, a lot of people are on antidepressants and over time they're still depressed. I don't know if you find that or not. Are we using these drugs as band-aids? And do you believe we need to be more focused on the root cause of the depression in the first place? I think there's a balance. I think that we, especially in older people, I think that we're getting better and better at detecting depression. And I do think that we need to have treatment. We need to consider medication. I think that Traditionally, we've undertreated older people and, and in a way not medicated when medication could help. I think there's a balance also of a single episode of depression warrants medication for 9 to 12 months and then a trial of weaning and stopping it. Mm-hmm. And what I do find is that people end up on antidepressants for decades for a single self-limited episode of depression yes. without any evidence of going into and um, you know having a recurrence. They went into remission and they stayed that way and they... St- Stayed on medication that whole time. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times the doctors just double the medication. Yeah, so we just keep it going. So I think we do have to have an approach to discontinue or even, you know, like we talked about, deprescribe those medications when they're no longer necessary. We also don't have great systems in place to support caregivers and to support people who have depression. So it's much more difficult to find counseling, especially counseling that's covered by Medicare, to find support depending on what kind of support is needed, and to find support for caregivers, including provider services, volunteers, you know, in-home caregivers. Those are tangible things that could actually really impact someone's 
ability to manage that day-to-day stressor. But what we end up doing is we often use medication because it's easier to do. So I think there's a balance that, yes, we don't, we've had times when we tend to under-medicate, but we also use medication when medication's not the best approach. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a place right here in town. I don't know if you've heard of it. Amazing Place? Of course. Okay. So they have a lot of resources there and a lot of counseling, you know, so much for the caregivers there that they can plug into. So. Yes, they do. And mm-hmm. that that's the kind of support that caregivers really need. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, Dr. Holmes, you've been such a wealth of information for us today. And we just appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us, you know, on such an important topic. Please let our listeners know where they can find you. <laughs> Okay, Carrie. Oh, so are, I are am we not going to go there. <laughs> so She's I practice. So busy, y'all. <laughs> I she practice be at. Found. No, I I want to be found. I want to be found. Um, well, so I am at McGovern Medical School, and we have a very wonderful group of geriatricians and palliative care physicians uh, and practitioners here. And our group practices both in the UT physicians and in Harris Health. And we have a practice at the Center for Healthy Aging at UT Physicians in Bel Air. And we have several people there beyond, in addition to myself who um, see patients 65 and older there. Okay, that's awesome. Good. Well, thank you again, Dr. Holmes, for being a guest here on The Healthy Brain Podcast. We really appreciate you and the work that you're doing in the lives of others. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you. So welcome. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not meant to replace personalized advice from your healthcare provider. If you have specific medical questions, please talk to a licensed medical professional.